This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Joseph Meyer. Joe teaches at the University at Albany in the program in Writing and Critical Inquiry. His research focuses on early American literature, the heroic narrative, and how historical movements shape our socio-cultural interactions. He is the host of the Neutral Ground podcast, a show that seeks meaningful conversations about the human experience, without the divisiveness of extreme views. You can find more information about Joe and the podcast at theneutralgroundpodcast.com. I very much enjoyed the interview with Joe. We talked about a variety of things, including Herman Melville and Moby Dick, and a variety of other topics that I found to be particularly fascinating. It's a little bit of a departure from our norm, but we do talk about one excellent quote from Moby Dick regarding Captain Ahab, something that I hope is valuable to you as it was to me. I hope you'll check it out. I hope you enjoy the interview. Now, without further ado, here's Dr. Joseph Meyer. Dr. Joseph Meyer, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Matt, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, so, Dr. Meyer, you know, as we as we get going here, um, I'm kind of curious. You know, we we met, um, had an opportunity to to have a couple of discussions, and I think we we both have a fondness for words. You know that this this podcast is centered around them. Uh, you know, those written and spoken throughout history. You have uh, quite the resume yourself um, with regards to both literature and writing, and so I guess kind of just to step out of the gate here, I'd, I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are on um, on the significance of words and why you have devoted as much of your time to them and and, and what they mean to you both personally and, and professionally. Sure. So, I mean, I for me, it's almost, I almost feel like it's an understatement to say that it's it's almost everything to me. Right, because it's it's how we think, it's how we interact with ourselves, it's how we interact with with the world around us, and it's the it's such an a focal point for making meaning and making sense of where we are in life and where we want to be. And just to give kind of a a, a hard example here, I I changed my major. I was originally a music major at one point, playing alto sax, an alto sax player who didn't particularly love jazz. Go figure where that was going to go. Um, and then I switched my major again to computer science, and I did my associate degree in computer science. But during the computer science degree, I took a short story class. And I've always enjoyed stories and enjoyed reading, but I never thought I would do anything with it necessarily. However, in this short story class, we read a, a, bo- uh, a short story by, uh, by Herman Melville called Bartleby the Scribner. And it's essentially about a character named Bartleby who works in a law copying office in New York City. And his entire job is essentially to copy legal documents. This is in the 1850s. So we couldn't just throw it on the Xerox machine and and get a copy. They had to actually do it by hand. 
And he, when, he, when he's hired, he's originally the greatest employee you could ask for. I mean, does everything incredibly well. And then one day, the lawyer calls him into his office. And he says, Bartleby, I want you to go over these documents with me to make sure our copies are in sync. And he says the following phrase, I would prefer not to. Now, just think for a minute and enjoy the language there, right? Because what is he not saying? He's not saying no. He's also not saying yes. He's saying, I would prefer not to. That phrase is, it just haunted me because I thought, if I'm the lawyer, and in this story, believe it or not, the lawyer is not a bad man in any way. As a matter of fact, he goes as far as to, to tell Bartleby. Bartleby continually becomes worse in his condition and to the point that he sort of prefers not to do anything, including leave the law, the law firm at night. So the lawyer says, Bartleby, will you come home with me? I'd like to help you and I'd like to take care of you. And he says, I'd prefer not to leave. And I just thought to myself, if I were the lawyer, what do I do with this? I want to be a good person. I know that I would want to help him. But I would feel like I was going mad, trying to deal with this statement even of preference. And it gets to the point where the lawyer actually just leaves the building. He takes his entire firm and leaves. And Bartleby is left there, where he's eventually arrested and sent to the prisons and, and all of these things. And I'll, I'll leave the ending for people if they, if they want to you know, read it, because it, it is truly one of the best texts in early American uh, literary history by one of the best authors, Herman Melville, who also wrote Moby Dick and whatnot. But in that moment, I was challenged. And I was challenged in a way that I hadn't previously felt before, which was this idea of what, what do we do with language like this? How do we interact with it? And I realized how a simple sentence could, could quite literally stop someone and make them reassess everything. And from that moment forward, not only did I know that I was going to continue with my bachelor's degree in English or you know literature, but I knew that I needed to get to the highest point. I knew that I needed to get a PhD and that I needed to figure out everything that I possibly could about this author, Herman Melville, and about this text about Bartleby. What is eating Bartleby? So language, words, they're transformative, right? Uh, we, you know, I, I spoke about this with my students, with uh, Frederick Douglass, how knowledge equals power or knowledge is power. And we talked about how we needed to define what power meant. And what we came to an understanding of was that power was essentially transformation. If you allowed language to do so, if you allowed knowledge to do so, it was going to have a transformative effect on you. And how in many ways, we, 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 need, we almost need to respect that even more so than just throw it out as a phrase. Because transformation, of course, can be in, in many ways positive and negative. And so what we landed on as a class was knowledge is transformative, but you also need to have methods in place to be able to, to sort of gauge whether that transformation that it was having within you was leading you to be a more positive version of yourself 
or a more problematic and destructive version. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's a great point. And I, I love that. I love that phrase. Knowledge is power. It's so easily, it rolls off the tongue. It's so easily thrown around and there are so many translations and, and, and interpretations of that. And I think you hit on the power piece, which I think is interesting. And that my mind immediately goes to, well, you also have to define what knowledge is, right? Mm -hmm. Because we may mistake the fact that we have all the information in the world at the tip of our fingers. It's a constant joke. If only we had all the information in the world at the tip of our fingers. Oh, wait, yeah, we do, right? Mm -hmm. But defining what knowledge is. Knowledge is not just information. Um, knowledge is not just data. There's, there's, a, there's an interpretation piece of that. There's a processing piece of that. So, so is that something that you've talked about with your students as well? Did you touch on the knowledge piece? Or is, do you feel like your students have a fundamental understanding of what knowledge is already? Well, something that we, I think teachers in general are struggling with today. I know I am. I'm grappling with this. And this is going to be a part of, of probably my, either the tail end of my second or third unit for the class. But that is the fundamental question of how we narrate information, right? Because we're living in an age of big data and we're living in an age where people, look, let me, let me break it down this way. When, we, when you used to teach research to students, oftentimes the biggest obstacle was the idea of can, how do we get them to understand that, that not all research is equal in terms of where it, it's coming from, its origin point, right? So something that we would often teach is we would try to push students toward what's called peer-reviewed research, meaning that it went through, you know, it went through a, a process where an editor sent it to like three or more professionals in that field who could look at it and just to make sure that that the research was done correctly, that everything looks good and that it's adding an important conversation to the field. Okay. But that has significantly changed in the past, let's say, four to five years especially. And now you have people with individual websites who are professionals, have been professionals in their fields for 15, 20 years, and is that peer-reviewed? No. But is it legitimate? Yes. I mean, in a lot of ways it is. That's the legitimacy of that information. So that was one, one part that we need to grapple with. The other one, though, is this idea of how we look at statistics and we look at data and how I oftentimes I'll tell my students, you can't just drop a statistic or a piece of data on a page and as like a mic drop moment, they'll just be like, bam, look at that. <laughs> like that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Your reader may not have interpreted it the same way that you did, mm. which means you have to give some sort of narrative context to that information. How are you reading it, right? Is it a, a horrible statistic? Is it a great statistic? Is it, you know, what does it mean? And so something we're struggling with is how do we narrate information? How do we narrate the data? Um, you have a lot of people today talking about data about the world, how the world, Steven Pinker, how the world is, um, I think Bjorn Lomberg as well mm -hmm. does this. He talks about how the world has never been safer, has never been more open for people, you know, to, to improve upon themselves. While that has a very real usefulness to it, right, for all of us to look at that, the problem in the narration sometimes is when you apply that to an individual case who is still struggling, 
how does that narrative necessarily help that individual who's still struggling? And so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily saying that we don't need that data, that what they have, and that it's not important. It is. What I'm saying is we have yet to confront, I think as a people, the problem of creating some sort of mechanism of parsing out how we handle and narrate information in a meaningful way. I think we're still struggling with that. No, I, I agree with you completely. And I, I really appreciate you bringing that point to bear because I, I think that the, the tendency, and perhaps you've seen this, is that because of that inundation of information and that overload of data that is available at any moment to us, that we have one of two responses. We either, in an effort to avoid the overload, distill it down to a single data point or distill it down to a single quippy phrase or whatnot and, and, and try to sum up all of that in one simple thing because it makes it easier to compute, or we get so lost in it that we forget that ultimately we were trying to arrive at a conclusion because you can go, regardless of the topic, whether it's nutrition or philosophy or you know, whatever, and you can find enough information out there that you could be led to change your own mind without without trying to and then change it right back. And and that can be very good, but I think trying to distill down that information into something that is actionable is very hard. And I think what you're talking about, you know, the old way of research is assigning legitimacy or a value to a piece of information or a piece of data or or some type of, of research. Um, and that's really, really hard, and that can be overwhelming. So it's not only do I now have to sift through all of this data, I now also have to attribute value, and I have to do this research to figure out if the research that I did was actually good research, or if it was from a tainted source. Um, that determination of provenance is is very challenging, I think. And um, I'm sure that's a struggle for your students as it is for, for the rest of us. And we're, we're not even in, in, a, in a PhD program or in pursuit of a degree necessarily. We're just trying to live our lives. Yeah, and, and Matt, too, the other fundamental aspect here that's problematic today is you, ha you can have now multiple peer-reviewed sources and, and legitimate data points that argue against each other. And I think, I think that's something that we're struggling with today as well, is to say, okay, you know, side A says we should do this, side B says we shouldn't. Both are very much legitimate in terms of their research approach, their claims, and all of that. So, and this is where I'm going to be challenging my students, is I'm going to actually have them... I, I, for their own good, I'm going to tell them, you need to come up with some kind of mechanism for how you're going to parse out multiple incredibly well-formed sources and research in order to figure out what do you do with it now. I mean, where, where does it take you? How do you make your decisions now? It used to be a little bit easier. It did. It used to be a little bit easier. And now with this access to so much good information and interesting information, it's very difficult without some sort of grounded mechanism to parse all of that out. Oh, I'm 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 sure that it is, and I'll be I'd be very interested to hear how how the, what the what mechanisms the students do come up with because it is a it is a very real challenge, and it's you know there's a lot of folks I, I've I've been in in heavy research based courses myself, and there's 
you know, talking about peer-reviewed literature and and things of that nature, it it is certainly something that is valuable. And you hear the 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 older professors who did their research in libraries in dusty books and you know spent countless hours poring over things that well it's so easy nowadays you can go look up whatever you need to find you know and it's so simple as long as you have the right subscriptions to the right databases you can get everything at the tip of your fingers but i think the thing that is often neglected in those arguments is that then you have to do exactly what what you're what you're talking about which is determine what is valuable and what is not and then on top of that which is always the challenge of research is how as you said how do you narrate it how do you make it mm-hmm. um presentable and digestible to the reader in a way that tells them or guides them to understand it the way that you do um so that's that's a very interesting thought um one of the things that i, I want to touch on um for a moment here and maybe you can give our listeners a little bit of a history lesson as it were uh, is is a series that you have kind of worked through on your podcast um about modernism postmodernism and neo-modernism and those terms um probably mean something to to some of the listeners they may be the first time some of the listeners have heard that so um maybe the the wikipedia um workflow of of those of those three things and i know that's that, that's an entire field of study so i'm asking a lot <laughs> Yeah, no, no problem. And I, I, I have had to, I've thought about this a lot, and I've brought it into the classroom too. So I, I have worked on my Wikipedia kind of approach here. Um, okay, so the, the first thing that we need to ground is how do these major historical movements actually function? Because that's important. You want to think of these major historical movements like rubber bands. The further along we get into these movements, the more you stretch that rubber band out. And of course, the more you stretch a rubber band out, the more potential energy you create and the more likelihood that eventually it's going to kind of snap. And how do rubber bands snap? Well, not easily. They snap back violently. And that's sort of what happens at the tail end of these historical movements, right? And what you're left with is usually a reaction to the previous movement in some way. So for example, we can go back and start at at a kind of start with the Enlightenment, right? The Enlightenment is all about rationalism and rational thinking, right? It's not so much about what you feel. Can you rationalize it? Okay, so the rubber band is getting pulled back. It snaps, and you ask the question at the end of all of these movements, how long can the human being live in a state of hyper-focused blank? And blank is usually that historical movement. How long can they live in a hyper-focused way of, of pure rationale? right before the human being says, look, I've got to feel something in some ways. I, I have to have my, my emotions acknowledged. So the rubber band snaps and we, we go into romanticism. And romanticism tends to be about emotion, connection to nature, but also you have the dark romantics. And the dark romantics, people like Byron Coleridge in in English literature, and then you move into American literature as well with Melville, Hawthorne, Poe, you know, to a degree Dickinson, the dark romantics, they sort of take the idea of the enlightenment and rationale, and they start to question who who should have, or, or, or what's the true value of, let's say, omniscience or pure rationale. So they sort of take a fight to God, because God for them, 
equals the the the, the tip tip of of rationale, right? God knows everything. So you've got two competing elements here in romanticism. Emotion and also this struggle with how to deal with knowledge. And out of romanticism you get one of our favorite villains of course or you know complex characters which is the mad scientist who creates out of pure knowledge. Okay. Here's the rubber band. It snaps again. We we start moving into modernism. And part of what modernism focuses is uh, focuses on is trying to trying to reconsider what it means to be human, right? Because we we did the rational part, we did the emotional part. How long can the human being be purely emotional? Mm, not very long, right? Before you just burn out. So then we start to think we have our we have depression, we have World War One, we have. In America, you have the Civil War, which I think thrusts America into a kind of modernism much earlier. The first time you have a movement, I think, that starts in America first is, I think, modernism after the Civil War. And because of these newfound ways that we have to completely destroy human beings en masse, we take a look at ourselves and we say, whoa, if rationale, if emotion didn't stop us from doing this, we have to reconsider what it means to be human. So modernism tends to be about trying to redefine and rethink what it means to be human. You have the updates in the Geneva Convention. You have, uh, you have authors who are, are writing and shrinking, believe it or not, the human condition. So if you ever read like a Hemingway novel or you read something from Fitzgerald, let's say, you'll note that they're usually about one single individual and there's nothing grand happening necessarily. And that's because when we look in modernism at the large swath of humanity, there's something about it that's overwhelming. And so we shrink in modernism and look at the individual. But the rubber band is constantly moving. And now we're saying we can't come to some sort of agreement on what the human being is or should be. And where does that leave us? Skepticism. After World War II, when we jump, we jump into postmodernism. And for a lot of people, if you try to look up postmodernism, it's, it's like a lot of gobbledygook for people. But you can actually boil down postmodernism to one word, skepticism. And we become skeptical of being able to define just about anything. So we, we start to play with language with the poststructuralists, with Derrida and all of them, right? We start to also be skeptical of grand narratives, Anything that tries to define a way of being, right, wrong, good, evil, right? So we start to look skeptical upon things like religion. And I would caution people because there's a very common narrative today to, that all of our problems today are because of postmodernism. <laughs> it's just a common thing that we hear. <laughs> what I would caution people to is, is this. There is good and there is bad in every historical movement. Right? We love Enlightenment thinkers, but at the same time, things that they struggled with, we're still struggling with today because of them. Same thing with Romanticism. Same thing with postmodernism. The good in postmodernism is that in the civil rights era of America, it's the postmodern thinking to destabilize the grand narrative that was keeping some people out of experiencing the fullness of society 
postmodern thinking, believe it or not, played a huge role, if not the defining role in many ways, to help push the civil rights movement forward in the 1960s. So that's a major good. The major bad, though, that people tend to see is that by the tail end of postmodernism, let's say in the 90s, early 2000s, well, here's the rubber band again. How long can a human being live in pure skepticism mm -hmm. where you can't believe? I mean, think about this, Matt. You can't believe or, or we can't come to terms together on things like what is right, mm. what is wrong. And we start to ask questions like, is there even a, such a thing as a def definition of good and evil? That is a horrific place to be. And so at the tail end of postmodernism, I usually say, look, it had to die. It had to die at that point because we have destabilized um, narrative so much that I think it started fracturing everybody and we lost sight of, of being able to collectively identify anything. Mm. And so we move into neo-modernism, which is our current historical movement. And I think we're trying to get a hold of stabilizing things again, stabilizing narratives, stabilizing in some ways. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And I, I really appreciate the rubber band analogy because I think it is applicable not just to historical eras like that, but there are similar themes across other domains as well. Um, you see that, that, that there are periods of history that apply in the military. Um, Max Boots on War is a great example of that where he talks about the the four or five-ish phases of of military conflict and for hundreds and hundreds of years it was mass formations it was he who has the most people and that's when you see battles of 60 80 100,000 troops per side and generally the victor fell to with few exceptions the the team that had the most players and that came to an abrupt end uh, right about the time of the American Civil War, World War One, like right in that 40, 50, 60 year period um, is where you saw that come to an end. And why? Because you had a new era. And that was the era of, um, of, of high velocity, high volume weaponry, accurate weaponry. And that changed things. And then you go through another era where you have nuclear weapons now. Nuclear weapons invalidate all those machine guns and all of those high powered rifles. And then you get into today's age, the information age, and you, you've got these various phases. So the rubber band is very interesting. And the place where my mind goes with that, you talked about um, you know, the rubber band being stretched and then snapping. Um, I would assume, as it is in on the military side of the house, that these are not discrete events. There is overlap between the various eras. And depending on who you talk to and their interpretation... Um, it can be very difficult to pinpoint this is the day or this is the year rather mm -hmm. that that this era ended and we entered a new one. And so when because even you said, you know, sometime in the 90s, early 2000s, I mean, that's, that's a 10 year period, 20 year period, depending on how you look at it, uh, where postmodernism meets neomodernism. And um, I guess, are there telltale signs from your experience where an era is coming to an end or reaching the the the, the full elasticity that's available and it's about to snap. Is, are there telltale signs that you can see at the end of the Enlightenment, at the end of Romanticism, at the end of Modernism, where you know something is coming? It's just a matter of time. And the caveat or the, the follow on to that is is there a single triggering event potentially that creates that snap? 
Yeah, I don't think I don't think there's a single trigger event. I think the the most accurate we can be is saying about when the larger population is starting to become consciously aware of it. And even that is, I'm very careful with my words there because, I mean, you can see signs of people pushing back on postmodernism uh, during postmodernism. Of course, people are doing that in, in the early 90s. You have, or even in the in the 80s, you've got uh, Jürgen Habermas who who is talking about, you know, how the poststructuralist French, you know, language is so self-referential and and says nothing of value really i mean that's a, a pushback against that's almost neo-modern but back in the 80s so it is very difficult to pinpoint when these things happen and when they start what i would say is this so you have that destabilized narrative in postmodernism and i usually give an example that is difficult a difficult example but i think it's the best one and that is the the uh, show Family Guy, right? Incredibly funny show. I like it. It's it's you know Seth MacFarlane does a, a good job in terms of parody and whatnot. But there was a scene that made me realize what was happening and that pull of history, how historical movements can change the way we actually think as a species in many ways. And it's this scene. There's a character on the show named Herbert. And if anybody knows who Herbert is, he has a certain name attached to him. It's Herbert the Pervert. It's widely known on the show that he's actually a pedophile. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. there's a scene in an episode where Peter and Lois go away and Herbert is left to kind of watch the kids. There's a scene where he's tucking in Chris, and Chris is a, about a 16-year-old boy. And... He's reading the 16-year-old boy in bed, uh, Peter and the Wolf. And the whole time we're watching this, there's an incredible intensity to the situation because we know what Herbert is, right? And the whole time, McFarlane and his writers are building that intensity of the moment and waiting for just the right time to release the intensity through laughter. So at the tail end of Herbert reading the story, Chris just blurts out, are you a pedophile? And everyone laughs because that's our way of releasing the tension. Mm. But, and here's, here's the postmodern moment here. I'll often, I'll show that scene and I'll ask my students, okay, I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty here, but I've got an important question. What are we laughing at? And again, I can't stress this enough, even for, for your listeners, the purpose is not to make people feel guilty. Mm. It's not that. What I want to show is through an historical movement and by destabilizing the narratives, these grand narratives that we've always had, it was able to get us to laugh at a situation on pedophilia. Mm. Mm-hmm. I can't, I mean, that there's no way around that that is what's happening. And for me, that there's something about that that just made me think, oh, wow. I mean, could that have happened in any other time period? 
except other than one where the purpose of postmodernism is to destabilize things. And so that happens in the 90s. And at the same time that you have these shows like South Park and Family Guy who are who are quite wonderful at postmodern art and destabilization, you also have the emergence of the superhero again. In the 90s, you have Batman, the animated series, X-Men. You've got these cartoons coming in, and then you start ha having the films, right? The X-Men films in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And then something happens in 2008. You get Iron Man. The first real release of the MCU as we know it today, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And what Marvel did, the reason why they are as hugely successful as they are is because they read the room better than anyone. And I'm not saying they knew anything about neo-modernism, <laughs> but you know what they said was this. We think people would rather hear stories that are simple and that are not complex or destabilized, right? At the end of the day, Iron Man and Captain America, the two keystones for the Marvel Cinematic Universe for those first three phases, they are the simplest superheroes you'll ever find, right? One just wants to, in Iron Man, clean up his name, make a good name for himself. He doesn't like the fact that his, you know, uh, his weapons were being used for destruction. He wants to do good openly. The other one in Captain America, at the end, people are crying because he gets to dance with his love. Marvel understood, forget the complexity and destabilization of postmodernism. People are ready to believe in grand narratives again in some way collectively. So let's just write stories that deal with fairly simple motifs of good versus evil. And that, in my opinion, that was a kind of conscious moment mm. and awareness of neo-modernism for the public. No, that's that's fascinating. And, you know, that that restructuring, the reestablishment of, of structure that you mentioned in kind of the neo-modern way of thinking, you know, that that let's turn away a little bit from skepticism and that postmodern and, and, and return to something that that resembles stability. Uh, in things, I guess, um, and I'm going out on a limb here, and uh, but with we with your experiences and your, you know, you you've clearly studied these these eras um, or these periods of time, these historical periods, quite in depth. If if you were to venture a guess, and who knows, maybe somebody will come back to this podcast in you know another forty or fifty years. What comes next? What comes after neo-modernism? Where do we go from there? After we return to a semblance of stability, we've turned away from that being skeptical towards everything, which some, myself included, would argue is easy. It's easy to be skeptical. Maybe not all the time, but skeptics don't often, as the old saying goes, skeptics don't contribute much. I think it was Coolidge that said that. Um, you know, critics don't contribute much. Skepticism is easy. Um, we've turned away from that. What comes after neo-modernism? Yeah, I actually have thought about this a little bit as well. Um, first, let me let me lead into that by saying I think that much of the contention that we see today in our discussions comes from our still trying to resolve that layover of skepticism from postmodernism. So we're still very much struggling with that, while at the same time trying to construct these these individual narratives that make sense to us and collective narratives at the same time 
And when everyone is trying to construct narrative at the same time, oftentimes that's when you get contention, mm-hmm. right? Because you you want yours and you want yours to be the dominant one. But so does the other person <laughs> at the same time. And so I think that we're still very much struggling with this kind of postmodern skepticism versus a neo-modern narrative reassurance. Where do I see that going? I think in some ways, at least for this cycle, I'm not saying this is forever. I think postmodernism was actually kind of the precipice point for us a little bit in this historical cycle. And I almost think that skepticism was kind of that the height of chaos for us. And I think we're heading our way back down the historical movement cycle. So neo-modern, neo-modernism is a type of modernism in that we're trying to, I think, reestablish what it means to be human, right? But we're struggling with it in a different way than modernism. We're thinking about the self, I think, a little bit more. And we're, we're trying to establish, very much struggling, to establish sacred narratives for ourselves. Okay, so if we're going down this historical ladder again, then that would mean the next movement, I think, would be a kind of neo-romanticism where we move from trying to figure out, you know, who, who we are, what's our story as a people, to starting to think about, again, because you'll notice, if you look around, you notice a lot of, of discussions about things like meditation, prayer, psychedelics, way of transcending, ways of transcending our mortal form, right, to be something more than just our body. I think that that one alone, to a degree, will probably move quite a bit toward reconnecting with nature, reconnecting with things that are are greater to us or greater than us in some ways. That can help define a more collective understanding of our state of being on Earth. So I think neo-romanticism, you'll get a move toward nature. You might, in that movement, you might get the most collective like agreements on things like climate change even in that regard. Hmm. Because even with that discussion today, it's a battle of narratives more than anything else. Sure. And that's a very neo-modern problem. Anytime you look around, you can boil down much of these these arguments to battles of narrative. And so I think you might get a, a, a better discussion in neo-romanticism. But you'll also get this kind of dark uh, – how do I say this? You, you might get another kind of dark romantic – kind of figure as well who's going to push back against any sort of definitions we try to come to about what it means to be human in neo-modernism so you'll probably get great art like we got in romanticism you'll probably get great struggles which for a human species is not always a terrible thing because we tend to struggle and then triumph you know we're, we're very good in that way so I, I'm still working through it, but I think I think we're going to head toward a kind of neo-romanticism. I do. No, that's that's great. That's a that's a very interesting analysis, and I I wouldn't be surprised. Um, the, like I said, thirty forty years from now to think back and go, ah, 
Joe was right. So um, <laughs> I certainly hope that's the case. Um, I was totally wrong. The robots took over. <laughs> hey, you know, and that's the that's the other alternative. So you're either very right or very, very wrong. Uh, right. So speaking of, of romantics, um, I believe when you had mentioned, um, you talked about Melville. Um, he falls solidly in the romantic period. Um, and sure. is he one that you would classify as a, as a dark romantic? Because certainly some of his works tend to lean that way. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing I do want to talk about is obviously being a, a podcast about quotations. Um, you know, you, you brought some words that you, uh, from, you know, Herman Melville's epic tome, um, Moby Dick that I'd like to talk about as well, but maybe give us a little bit of background on, on Herman Melville, kind of where he was at kind of contextually at the time when he wrote Moby Dick and, and the significance of that as a romantic piece of literature. Sure. So, yeah, Melville read, I mean, more than any other author I've ever come across in my life. And that makes him always intriguing to, to study. That was one of the reasons, you know, one of the things that, that drew me to him even more in the graduate work was he just read and read and read, I mean, everything. And he very much was a romantic in the sense that I think he struggled. He struggled with the idea that he that there could be a supreme being like God who had all of this knowledge and had all of this wisdom and, you know, had a loving son in Jesus. And this was very much a struggle for him. And, you know, his, his good friend for much of his life, Herman, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne had said something about him that had, and I got to get this just right. Had Melville been a true kind of believer he would have been one of the best and that's because he did struggle he, he i think he desperately wanted to have the purest of faith possible because of this connection too he he interacted with authors like byron and shelley and and coleridge these the british romantics more than anything and i think what he wanted to do is he wanted to in some ways figure out can i get past them so they struggled with 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 faith as well and with trying to deal with the the big why question that many people struggle with why does this happen why do we um why do we have things like fear and suffering and why do we have all these things in the world when there's a certain amount there's a power in the universe that could prevent it and this is certainly understandable many people struggle with these questions today even and melville just gave them language. Melville gave these thoughts a tremendous language that when you read it, you can understand, I think, his struggle and, and it, there's something about it that hits you in a very poetical way. More than anything, I think Melville's, he wrote poetry about the Civil War, but there's something that's so beautifully poetical about his prose that just reads like poetry, that just makes these questions kind of stick with you more than anything. So he was very much into kind of his own battles with cosmology, not even just God, but just just everything in general. Just the he has a, an idea of the universal thump. And the universal thump is basically when the world decides it's going to hit you with, you know, something bad. Mm -hmm. And so I'll use that language even today. I'll say, "Oh, the universal gave me a thump." You know, and then, and for Melville, it was just a turn-based thing. Like, it's your turn sure. now. Sure, sure. And so, it happens to yeah. all of us. 
Absolutely. And I think Melville understood that universal connection to humanity. And he wrote to that universal connection, I think, more than anything. Yeah, and 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 that's great. And I think this is a perfect lead into um to the 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 quote that you brought to the table today. And it speaks to that poetic nature of the prose, because this is not poetry at this point. This is a, a narrative story about a captain and a whale and it taken at face value, it's an intriguing story. But like so many valuable words once you get past the superficial detail, I find this a lot, and I've attributed this a lot, to poetry. Poetry, good poetry, is digestible at first pass. It's entertaining. It's interesting. There's a, you know, something. Great poetry is good at first pass, but then there's more. There's a lot more to it when you dig into it. And the line that you have today, and I'm going to read it here for the listeners, um, the line that you have today is that, as it, it creates an image, it creates a picture. But then there's a lot more to it, and that's what I want to talk about. But but here's the quote. Um, it's uh, it, it starts with, Ahab leaned over the side and watched how his shadow in the water sank and sank to his gaze. The more and the more that he strove to pierce the profundity. End quote. So again, it, it creates an image, right? In my mind, I see, and you know, I'm doing doing an analysis on the fly here, but I'm imagining, you know standing over the edge of a, a ship, hands on the railing, chest down on the railing, looking down into the water and watching that 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 self disappear. The, the more you try to reach out and grab it, the more it, it, it eludes you. Um, and And that's an image, right? That's another depth of an image there. And interestingly enough, the place where my mind goes with this is, I'm sure you've seen the Harry Potter movies. There's the scene where they're standing in... Um, uh, standing and looking over the memory tub basin, whatever that thing is called. The the Harry Potter fans are screaming at the at the episode as <laughs> <Yeah>. we speak. <laughs> um, and and they put the memory in there and 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 travel down through and and, and go with it. That's where my mind goes. It's a similar an analog to that in my mind. Um, but I'm curious. So what what about these words stands out to you? And and how do these prose translate into that poetic uh, nature that you that you spoke of? Yeah, so I think something that Melville understood about those dark romantics that came before him is that you can chase knowledge to your destruction. It will call to you at a certain point, and, and something that maybe this, this will make me seem like a terrible instructor, but I'm actually I'm known to tell my students about that same transformative nature of knowledge that we talked about I think earlier. I'll tell them, not all knowledge is good. You have to be very careful about this, you know, because again, knowledge is transformative and that transformation is not always guaranteed to be a good one. And so I will tell them flat out, if what I say to you, you digest and you listen to and you, you know, you deal with it. If what I say did not make you in some ways a better version of yourself or to better understand the world in a better way, get rid of it. Get rid of it. And so here you have Ahab. And Ahab, in this particular chapter, it's called the symphony and aptly titled. It's just, it's like a symphony. It's beautiful. Even if you just read that one chapter of Moby Dick, it's absolutely stunning. And here is Ahab. He's been chasing the whale his entire life because he wants revenge. Not simply revenge on the whale who took his leg, but of course, he does see the whale as a kind of stand-in for God. He wants to bring vengeance upon God, you know? 
And in this chapter, he has this moment where he realizes, what, what has this revenge, this chase done to me? He says, I widowed the poor girl that I married. I haven't been to shore in more than three weeks in the last, like, 40 years or something. And he has this moment where he says, you know what? Let's, maybe we should stop this chase. Let's stop it. And his first mate, Starbuck, and yes, that's where we get the company Starbucks mm-hmm. from, <laughs> is from Starbuck. Starbuck is so happy. He says, oh, this is wonderful. Our children will play together and, you know, we'll <laughs> basically we'll have picnics together. You know, like, it's like, wonderful. We're going to go home. And then something happens to Ahab again. And it says, like a blighted fruit tree, he shook and cast his last cindered apple. And there's this connection to the apple in the Garden of Eden, the knowledge of good and evil. And suddenly Ahab becomes aware once again that there are things that are unfair in life. And he wants to know why. And he's willing to chase that answer why. So you have this moment at the beginning of the chapter where he looks over the side. And that shadow that he sees, that keeps, the more he tries to pierce what's happening in the world, the knowledge, that shadow is beckoning him and challenging him to say, if you continually try to search for this dark knowledge, which is a very dark romantic thing, you're going to drown. And so the point is, he's having a moment where he's actually, you could look at it as a merciful moment from God, saying, I'm trying to show you If you're going to chase this, you're going to drown in this and be destroyed. And so, I mean, spoiler alert, it's been like hundreds of years or so, over a hundred years. Of course, Ahab is destroyed. And you can make the argument that it is the pursuit of dark knowledge, the pursuit of, of, you know, vengeance at all costs. That ultimately leads to his drowning, his pursuit of that shadow. That this is a foreshadowing of kind of what's going to happen to him. Yeah, and like so many, so many wonderful quotes and things that tend to stick in our craw. You know, some of us think about them as we're going through our lives. Some of us, like yourself, pursue degrees uh, based around them. The things that tend to stick with us, I think, a lot of times are are cautionary tales because we want to know the future. Right, We want to know what the future holds, and we want to avoid the hazards that inevitably come our way. And so to your point, to, well, I guess to Melville's point, is Ahab is presented in this moment with a, 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 an outline, a rough in the, in the shadows, in the fog, in a reflection in the waves uh, type of, of view of, of the future. And as you said, in the micro, he is, he's, he's receiving a caution of his own. In the macro, we as the readers are receiving this this caution, I think. And if if that was Melville's intention, which it sounds like it was, um, to provide these kind of images that that stand the test of time and that that are relatable to us, because we can all again, I mean, I can sit here in uh, in my home and imagine standing on the railing of a ship, looking at my reflection in the water. That says a lot more to me than ah, be careful. Knowledge is knowledge can be dangerous doesn't have the same effect, not just literary effect, but um, the, 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 the profound 
transformative effect that you reference with your students. Um, I think that's a, and it does speak to the beauty of the words because my mind immediately in search of the provenance of things like this goes to, you know, Melville over a piece of paper. How many times was this line rewritten? You know, was he, did he read it or did he write it, look at it and say, "Mm, it doesn't quite get where I want to be and then change it again and again. And how many scraps of paper ended up on the floor of his, of his study or his writing room um, as he, as he sought to find just the right turn of phrase, or maybe he was so gifted and talented that it just came off the pen and it was perfect the first time around. I highly doubt it. I doubt it would be for most of us, but who knows? I mean, Melville is a a book that has withstood, as you said, well over a hundred years. So maybe he was that good, but um, that's an interesting thought to me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I actually worked on a team, of Melville scholars who actually looked at his manuscripts and we would, um, we went over his many revisions. He would, he, he, he had to revise constantly. He was a very huge editor, you know, in many ways. And yes, he did. He would, he would revise entire sections even. And what you love about that though, is that editing is a nod to the fact that he, how much he respected the craft you know, I've got to get this just right, mm. every word, you know. And as, as I said, there there is, you can see that nod to the craft in the language. His prose are absolutely poetical in many ways. They really are, especially in that book, of course, in Moby Dick. Yeah, that's, and it, it, it is beautiful. And I always love the image of, you know, those words. So, for example, you know, Melville puts those on a page, you know, 100 plus years ago. And you find them so moving and compelling that you pursue an academic career, at least in part due to that. And then when given the opportunity to talk about words that mean something to you, you bring this quote from that page all that time ago. And I wonder what it would be like to have Melville standing by and and listening to this and saying, I did it. You know, I I, I did it. I created something. Um, And whether that was his intention or not, um, he created something that has withstood the test of time and will doubtlessly continue to withstand the test of time. I mean, they call them classics for a reason. Um, Mm. and you know, that's, that's just a wonderful thought when I, when I think about the talent of an author like that to create something that doesn't just gather dust on a shelf, never to be spoken over read after a certain period of time, but withstands the test of time. Um, that's a, that's a fascinating thought for me. And it's, it's a lot of what drives this, this podcast forward is, is giving, um, a platform to words as compelling as Melville's. Yeah, I think it's wonderful. And yeah, I think he would absolutely, he would love to hear that we continually engage his works in, in this way. You know, he struggled. He wrote out the gate. He had a best kind of what we would call today a best-selling kind of novel in Taipei where where it talks about him jumping from a whale ship and living among cannibals. This is a true story for a little bit of time. He ended up living there, I think, only about two and a half weeks. But he was never comfortable with the fact that people, you know, very much liked that writing. He wanted to write about more philosophical things. And mm. so his third novel was is a huge novel that almost nobody reads called Marty, but I loved it. It's, I mean, in, it, the, the philosophy in there is is phenomenal. But as a novel, in many places, it's very difficult to to sort of stay with. But he was likely more proud of that novel than even the first two that he wrote, which were more like fictional. Uh, no, 
not fictional. Taipei is, is very much biographical with some fiction added to it. And so is his second novel, Omu, is very similar to there's historical stuff there, biographical. But he was, I think, incredibly proud of his fictional works that provided this high level. I mean, this is very high level, difficult stuff to chew on in every page. Mm, sure. No, and I very much appreciate those words, and I, I look forward to kind of digesting them myself, um, you know, and, and considering that it, it's now burned an image in my mind that I'm sure I'll carry well beyond the end of the, the podcast here. Um, as we as we kind of draw down to a close, Joe, I'd, I'd love to put you through the, the lightning round, as it were, if, uh, if, you're, if you're interested in that. Oh, yeah, let's do it. Okay, short, short questions. Answer as long as you like. First one, what is the most recent book you read or are currently reading? Oh, I'm going through um, Plato's Republic again just recently because I was teaching parts of it uh, with my classes. So I was just going through Plato's Republic again, and, and can, I continue to be fascinated by just how, how much of the how much of it still persists in specifically in American culture as well. And, and even just, I love interacting with the students and asking them about, you know, Plato's allegory of the cave and, and what, what do we make of that, especially today when we have conversations of, of uh, artificial intelligence and even, you know, people talking about whether or not we live in a simulation and that even came up in our discussion was, okay, so if we live in a simulation, then how do we reread Plato's allegory of the cave, right? <laughs> like, are we the prisoners in the cave <laughs> just living in a simulation sure. and never actually seeing the truth, right? So that was the last thing, although that's the latest thing that I'm kind of going through again. Interesting. I'm sure Nick Bostrom would love to sit in the room and hear there people debate his his theory with uh, and compare it to Plato's allegory. That that's fantastic. Um, all right, <laughs> number number two. If you could have dinner with any person, alive or dead, who would it be? Oh, I would love to have dinner with Herman Melville. Yeah. I mean, my entire dissertation, you know, from the beginning, I was told, and people were trying to be kind in telling me this. They were saying. Uh, nobody writes single author dissertations anymore. And I had known from the age of roughly 19, I guess, that I was going to do this PhD thing and I was going to pursue just a study on Herman Melville. And so when I went into grad school at the University of Arkansas, uh, people were telling me early on, oh, you're going to write a single author dissertation? You know, that's not very good for the job market. I just kind of said, oh, that's great. <laughs> probably depends on just, who that author is yes and and i knew that it was within me i had to pursue that and so i would love to sit down with with herman melville and just ask him about his not so much even about the writing i i would just love to talk with him apparently he was absolutely charming so charming in conversation and so i, I would just want to ask him about his thoughts on on life and just what sort of what he learned sure. from his experience, you know? Yeah, no, that would be that would be a conversation that I would like to be present for. So if if you ever figure it out, maybe it's the simulation thing. We'll give a we'll give Nick a call and see if we can't set that up. Um, number three, um, if you could be present at any event in history, what would it be? That is a great question. Oh boy. Hmm. I know there are many to choose from. It's hard. 
Yeah, it almost makes it worse that I love it. <laughs> that I love the question because I feel like I feel like there is a right answer for me, I mean. And I just can't I can't think of it. You know what? I I think I think it would be you know, like maybe and I hope I don't want people to take this I hope people take this in the right light, but something like VE day or VJ day because I would desperately want to ask whoever would would let me. What does this feeling mean to you? Let's say in America, especially, I'd want to harness that and just feel that moment. Mm. Because I, I do love World War II stories. I, I I will watch and sit down and watch any documentaries I can on it. Because there were just so many people involved, so many roles, so many individual stories that come out of it. I would just want to ask just average, normal people, what does this mean to you? And just listen to them. Yeah. It's 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 so interesting that you say that because I'm fairly certain if my memory is serving me well that it was Captain Settley who I did the first interview on this show uh, back episode 17 or so. And I think he actually said that he wanted to be on the deck uh, where uh, the, the armistice was signed with Japan um, for a very similar reason. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that separated by all this time and distance and, and history that the two of you would settle on a very similar point in, in history and for a very similar reason. So that's, that, that's very neat. Um, and I think you would get some very interesting responses from, from the, both the participants and the observers. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, let's see. Number four here. Uh, what book, article, paper, movie, or TV show would you recommend that would change someone's life? I'll go a different route here, right? Because I could go the Melville route, because I, but I, I'll sum that up a little bit for you here with, with Moby Dick just to say, think about what your white whale is that you're willing to chase to your own destruction, that's essentially what I talk about with my students is to say you have to be careful and, and knowing if you're chasing a white whale that you have no way of catching. It's just going to lead you to, to your destruction. What I will say then is I'll go this route for the reading route and I'll say either read the books, which I love, or watch the movies, which I also love. And that is Tolkien's Lord of the Rings mm. because that's sort of a modernism or modernist story. Um, pre just pre you know postmodernism, and it's modern in the sense that Tolkien is very much trying to again refigure out what it means to be human. That's what makes it so modern in the actual historical movement sense. And at the same time, Tolkien was so smart that he realized by the end of this reconfiguration and rethinking we have to come to some sort of understanding of what is right and wrong and good and evil. And I will, I just reread the entire trilogy again about two years ago now, I guess it is, about two years ago. And I have a terrible memory. I wish I had a better memory in a lot of ways. I really do. 
but I always mix up still what's the difference between some of the differences in the books versus the movies mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And I find myself quoting, saying I'm quoting the book and someone will say, that's from the movie. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> but what I would say is if you don't have time to read, the books are phenomenal. Watch the movies. I try to watch them actually once a year because I find it uplifting. The idea that there there is, you know, I think I think it's um, Samwise who has the best speech in there, where he talks about, you know, they ask, "What are we fighting for? What are we doing this for?" And he just kind of simply says, "Because there is good in the world, and it's worth fighting for." And in postmodernism, we would look at a phrase like that, and we would probably say something like, "Oh, that's kind of." hokey kind of you know dorky thing to say but cynicism has to die in neo-modernism especially it has to because Mm -hmm. we have to start listening to these narratives we have to start listening to each other and valuing these stories that we we each have and there's no better place to begin than by banding together in the face of evil Mm -hmm. and as um as the king says, ride out and meet it together. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. That's, that's almost, I was, I was going to guess it was either going to be something along the Lord of the Rings or something from Elville with you, because that's, that seems to be a common theme. And I really like the, the final sentiment you said there, you know, the idea of rallying around something as seemingly simple as good versus evil. And, you know, maybe if now that to bring things full circle, the, the rubber band has snapped and we're in this new historical period, um, maybe that's the starting point. That's the first stretch is, is that. So great. Um, two more. Number five, what is something you used to think one way about, but have since changed your mind on entirely? I used to think probably like many people when they're younger that that definitive answers were incredibly important in terms of, um, let's say, let's take politics, for example. You know, I would, I would, when I was younger, I wasn't I wasn't really ever heavily into politics. But if I heard something, I would be the kind of person who would say, okay, that makes sense. Let's go with that. And I guess in some ways, this actually connects back. It's a good question. Connects back to even maybe a little bit why I wanted to do the podcast that I'm doing is because I think I find that I can very easily, if I'm not careful, be persuaded to go to an extreme side. Mm. So, for example, I will sometimes do a deep dive on one particular idea. And, of course, the algorithms in social media or YouTube or whatever, they feed that to you. And so in a, in matters, in a matter of like, you know, six hours, you can find yourself having consumed six hours of very one-sided piece of information and feeling like every piece of that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I think what I've changed on is enough to know if I find myself completely assured of something, I need to stop for a minute. And I need to start thinking about the other side. If for no other reason than because, again, knowledge is transformative. 
I don't want to be on an extreme side of anything. I want to be in a, in a space where I can pull great ideas from either sides of whether it's a political aisle or a social aisles. I want to be in a place where, uh, where I can stand with humanity and just say, that's a good idea. I'm going to use that, or that's a good idea. I want to use that. I think we need that. And I think it was more important for me when I was younger to feel like I needed to be a part of, of a side, mm. let's say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we all fall victim to that. And I think it's, I think it's very self-aware and it speaks to your character as a person to, to recognize the limitations of your own knowledge and the fact that you can easily be, as we all can be, um, pulled into one-sidedism, as it were. So um, I, think that's, I think that's great. Um, last question, much less philosophical. What world record do you think you could break and why would you? Oh, boy. You know, I could probably break the world record of just sitting still and doing nothing. <laughs> I think that's it's a... very easy. It's always been easy for me to sit with my own thoughts <sighs> and just be quiet. So jealous. I love it. <laughs> I just it, it has it has been easy for me. That's not to say that my mind isn't isn't clouded um, and and chaotic at times with too much thinking. Absolutely, that happens quite a bit. But when I make a decision that, you know, like a waiting room, for example, has never been a problem for me, even, you know, no magazines or even before we had phones and stuff like that, I could just sit there and I would just sit there very quietly and you would think, that man, something's wrong with him. He's just a <laughs> bit too quiet and a bit too, like, okay with it. <laughs> you know, like, that was me. I would just sit there and I would just go, all right, I'm going to use this as a moment to reflect you know, you talked about this on, on your podcast as well, that virtue of silence with Franklin. And I've been yelling at my, my students since I had students in front of me. You have to find time for silence mm -hmm. and reflection. You have to make it. I mean, literally, you have to make it. It's not enough for you to say that you don't have the time. Take it away from something else then. That's right. That's right. Be because if, if I don't have at least a certain amount of quietness, in, in my head. I feel it. Mm -hmm. I'll feel it either whether it's at the end of that day or I'll feel it in the week and it will start to build up inside of me and I'll start to feel a little bit of that pull toward chaos. Sure. And the only way around that is to sit in silence and reflection. So could I break the record? Probably. Is that something that I would boast about? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it's still an admirable pursuit. It reminds me, you know, of the uh, if you've ever had a chance to visit the University of Virginia campus, um, they have an yes. old student space there, and right outside of all the old student dorms is a small garden um, with a footpath. And the specific reason for that was so that students could take a thought from a textbook um, and walk and think. Yeah. And it, what a novel idea that is to do that. So I certainly look forward to the uh, the next podcast from Dr. Joe Meyer's Neo-Modern Meditation Series. Um, I think that'll be that'll be fantastic. And you'll have a, a ton of subscribers <laughs> uh, just for that. Yeah. So, um, well, great. Uh, Joe, take a moment and um, let the listeners know where they can find more of your work, uh, your wonderful podcast, and how they can reach out and touch you if, uh, if they want to. Sure. So the easiest way is to just go to the neutralgroundpodcast.com. 
that's sort of my main website where you could go there and read about the podcast, read a little bit about me, check out episodes, things like that. And you can always send me an email at the neutral ground podcast at gmail.com as well. I always love to hear from people. Specifically, I love to hear your thoughts. You know, you can even leave me an audio message at the neutral ground podcast.com. I love that too. That's always fascinating to me. Yeah, I want to know what people are thinking. I love listening to thoughts. That's why I got into teaching was I love that idea. I'm not huge on social media. I don't have like Twitter or Facebook or anything like that. Um, I do have a LinkedIn account, but I, I would say if you want to reach out to me, send me an email or leave me an audio message. I would love to hear from people. Fantastic. Well, I certainly hope, listeners, that you enjoyed this conversation as much as I have and that you do take some time to reach out uh, to Dr. Joe Meyer. So, Joe, again, thank you very much for being on the podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure. Matt, I had a blast. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you. Welcome your feedback. And thanks as always for listening.